Five Navy crosses, a purple heart, a silver star, the Army Distinguished Service Cross, five presidential unit citations. These are just a few of the awards earned by Lewis Burwell Puller, a.k.a. Chesty Puller, the most decorated Marine in the history of the Corps. He fought and fought a lot in the Korean War and World War II. He fought in the jungles of Haiti and Nicaragua for years. He earned the rank of Major General and served as Assistant Division Commander and then Commander of the 1st Marine Division in Korea. He was posthumously promoted to Lieutenant General out of respect for his distinguished service. He was a soldier, a leader, a man's man's man. Remember those old Chuck Norris jokes? You know, Chuck Norris doesn't sleep. He waits. Chuck Norris once shot an enemy plane down with his finger by pointing at it and yelling, bang. What was going through the minds of all of Chuck Norris's victims before they died? His shoe. Chuck Norris has two speeds, walk and kill. Well, Chesty Puller would kick Chuck Norris's ass. So let's get to know this real-life legend, this American military hero, in honor of Veterans Day this Saturday. Good night, Chesty Puller, wherever you are. And if you're listening somewhere, hope you're enjoying this Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the Suck Time, Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. Admiral Captain Master of Suckers, a.k.a. Suckmaster, a.k.a. Pappy Suck, a.k.a. the Duke of Suckingham, a.k.a. Prophet of Nimrod, a.k.a. Beloved Nimrod, Scrotum Sanctioned Savior of Suck, <laughs> a.k.a. all the other hilarious titles you beautiful bastards have bestowed upon me this week. And we have an inspiring suck to get down and dirty with this week. Careful with this one, sweet lady suckers. It may put some hair on your chest. It may not be avoidable. Uh, There is so much man in this episode, just so much nuts, so much chesty polar testosterone in this one. Uh, If I would have been able to hop into a time machine these past few days, head back to the 40s to serve under this great steadfast oak of a man, I may have done so. Uh, I'd say they don't make him like Chesty anymore, but I don't know if they used to make him like Chesty uh, Chesty back when he was alive. He's just one of a kind. And while he was a Marine, uh, this suck is dedicated not not just to Marines, but to all you listeners who've served your country's military. Thank you. Uh, and thank you not just to American servicemen and women, actually, but to, to all you international listeners who served your respective countries. I know there are a lot of time suckers in the UK, Ireland, Canada, Australia, Sweden, Germany, elsewhere. Uh, this suck is most certainly certainly for you as well. Uh, thanks again for all the reviews, man. Wow, just uh, over 1,600 reviews and ratings on iTunes now, which just keeps extending regular bonus suck episodes. Uh, I love it. Uh, the next bonus episode, the 1,300 review episode, uh, will drop right after Thanksgiving on Friday, November 24th. Still trying to come up with uh, what that should be. Uh, just been too busy, man, these past few weeks, Jesus, uh, to put some proper thought into that. But I'll, I'll figure it out. We'll get a vote figured out. Uh, appreciate all you new suckers joining the past few weeks, and I apologize for mispronouncing Arnie Niekamp uh, from Hello from the Magic Tavern as Arnie Nykamp, uh, I think, last week. So somebody pointed that out. I have no excuse for that. Uh, I listened to their podcast. I, I know his name, and for some reason, I butchered it. Trouble pronouncing names, the bane of my existence, followed closely by trouble pronouncing everything else. Uh, but seriously, thank you uh, uh, for, for tuning in. And thanks to all of you who came out to Dayton this past week in Ohio. Pleasantly surprised with the amount of time suckers showing up to these shows. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of su- su- shows surprised me in Dayton. And that's where I'm recording right now, actually. Doing another hotel recording. Uh, hopefully we won't be doing too many of those going forward, man. Getting a little studio set up over the next few few weeks. Really uh, trying to try uh, get ahead on these episodes a little bit. And get that uh, get that audio magic flown into your ear holes at, at an even higher standard 
I want to just keep trying to fine-tune it, make it a little better. Uh, big thanks to you who bought tickets to the Detroit show on February 16th, 2018. The Magic Bag. Man, please keep pre-buying those tickets so uh, me and the guys from Small Town Murder and Crime and Sports, Jimmy and James, can add a second show, a live podcast. And then if you show up to that, you know, as well, I can set up uh, many other live podcasts around the country in 2018. Stand-up shows in Spokane, Washington this coming week, uh, November 9th through the 11th uh, this weekend. My last Northwest shows for the year and probably for a while after that. Dr. Grins in Grand Rapids, Michigan, November 30th through December 2nd. St. Louis Funny Bone, St. Louis, Missouri, December 7th through the 10th. Appleton, Wisconsin, one night only on December 13th at the Skyline Comedy Club. Comedy Club on State in Madison, Wisconsin, the rest of the week, December 14th through the 16th. And then Comedy Works in Denver, Colorado, December 28th through New Year's Eve. And a bunch of additional 2018 dates are coming. Uh, so come to those shows, man. I support my ability to continue touring. It's been, it's been a lot of fun having you guys come out. And, oh, uh, one more announcement. I can't forget. This is for Sarah Higgins. Time sucker, Sarah Higgins. Are you listening right now? If so, I need you to pay uh, really close attention because I need to deliver to you uh, one of the most important announcements of your life. I have a question for you. Will you marry me? Wait. Wait, 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 wait. No, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. I'm already happily married, and polygamy sounds like a nightmare. No offense to any other women, but I have no desire for more than one of you in my life ever. Uh, Sarah, are you still paying attention? Will you marry, I had that part right, will you marry other another time sucker, not me, Mark Herman. Will you marry Mark Herman? He wants to spend the rest of his life with you, and that time sucking son of a bitch has a ring on him right now. He's got the rock on him right now. You give it to her, Mark. Give it to her. Get down on your knee. Unless you're driving, then, you know, get down on your knees as soon as you can stop safely. Congratulations, you two. Thanks for sharing your big moment with the suck. And now, how about some tales of wartime valor to celebrate your uh, upcoming marriage? I don't know if that fits, but it, uh, it is what I researched this week, and I lost a lot of sleep for it. So, by God, that's what we're doing. It's time for Chesty Puller. The opening description of Chesty Puller on a very cool website called MarineParents.com starts with, Marines are known for always being faithful, for never giving up, for being hard chargers. Perhaps no Marine better exemplified these traits than Louis Chesty Puller, the most decorated Marine in the history of the Corps, and the only American serviceman to have been awarded the nation's second highest military awards for valor six times. Yeah, Chesty Puller is perhaps the bravest, toughest Marine there ever was. He's definitely in the running for that title, uh, which is pretty, pretty impressive, considering that's a military branch known for scores and scores of, of brave men and women. Uh, yeah, known for just a lot, a lot of bravery since its inception in 1775. Uh, before we march down an epic time suck timeline, the life of Chesty Puller, uh, let's give his service some context and learn a little uh, about the military branch he, he so faithfully served, the United States Marine Corps. Uh, on the 10th of November 1775, the Continental Marines were formed to conduct ship-to-ship fighting provide shipboard security and discipline enforcement and assist in landing forces in the American Revolutionary War. It was formed by the Continental Congress. In all, there were 131 colonial marine officers and probably no more than 2,000 enlisted colonial marines. The Continental Marines' only commandment was uh, uh, commandant uh, was Captain Samuel Nicholas, commissioned on November 22, 1775, and the first marine barracks were located in Philadelphia. Legend has it, uh, the recruiting for the Marines was first carried out at the Tun Tavern. And just weeks after banding together, the Continental Marines successfully executed their first amphibious landing on a hostile shore. They took over hens and chicken shoals uh, south of Miami, butchering uh, just thousands of beautiful aquatic sea chickens. 
And uh, I know I already said I was kidding about the sea chickens being real creatures and that could lay eggs underwater and only come to surface for air for time to time, but they did used to exist until the first Marines killed them, at least in my mind when I came up with that ridiculous lie. No, uh, the first Marines, <laughs> the first Marine landing did take place in the, the Bahamas, though. Uh, the British had been storing large supplies of gunpowder at Fort Nassau uh, in Bahamas for use in battle against 13 colonies. Captain Samuel Nicholas and 234 Marines sailed with the Continental Navy on a mission to capture the supply. Within minutes of the Marines' arrival, the British troops had surrendered. In addition to the gunpowder, Captain Nicholas successfully acquired cannons and other military stores. These initial Marines did all of this with very little military training and no uniforms. And then in June 1785, after escorting a stash of French silver on loan from King Louis uh, XVI from Boston to Philadelphia, silver uh, used to open the Bank of North America, the Continental Marines are disbanded. And then 15 years later, on July 11, 1798, President John Adams signed into law a congressional act recreating the United States Marine Corps. They were needed after some harassment by the French Navy of U.S. shipping during the French Revolutionary Wars. The next day, William Ward Burroughs I was appointed a major. The newly reestablished Marine Corps consisted of a battalion of 500 privates led by a major and a complement of officers and NCOs, non-commissioned officers. Marines aboard the USS, uh, USS Constitution and other ships conducted raids in the waters of Hispaniola against the French and Spanish, making the first of many landings in Haiti, participating in the Battle of Puerto Plata Harbor, uh, Harbor. Uh, in 1801, President Thomas Jefferson and Burroughs chose land and commissioned an architect to build the first Marine barracks in Washington, D.C. Also in 1801, the United States Marine Band played for the first time at the president's house, and they have since played for every U.S. presidential inauguration. The Marines fought in one of their most famous battles in 1805, one that became part of Marine legend, the Battle of Derna. When pirates had been raiding American merchant ships off the Barbary Coast, President Thomas Jefferson sent in an expeditionary force of Marines to fight back, fighting pirates. Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon led Marines across 600 miles of Libyan desert to storm the Tripolitan, uh, Tripolitan city of Derna and rescue the kidnapped crew of the USS Philadelphia. William Eaton and First Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon captured Derna on April 27, 1805, successfully defended it on May 13th. This victory helped protect U.S. ships and secure U.S. trading in the area. As a gesture of respect and praise for the Marines' actions at the Battle of Derna, First Lieutenant O'Bannon was presented a uh, Mameluke sword by the Ottoman Emperor or Ottoman Empire Viceroy, Prince Hamet, which is now the oldest ceremonial weapon still in use by the United States Armed Forces today. And it was around this battle that the Marines received the nickname of Leathernecks due to the high collar they wore as protection against the slashes of pirate sabers. Uh, I didn't know that. I thought that was some cool trivia. Man, putting on some extra leather around your neck to protect your fucking head getting cut off by a pirate. That's hardcore. The Battle of Derna was the Marines' first uh, ground battle on foreign soil, as notably recalled in the Marines' hymn. You know that? From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. We fight our country's battles in the air on land and sea. Right? The Marines would see other action in the first Barbary. I don't remember where I know that from, by the way. I must have learned it as a kid, that melody. Not that I, not that I sang in some miraculous rendition, but I'm, I'm, that is the melody. Um, but yeah, there's the other action, the first Barbary War. Then again, in the War of 1812, they'd battle Native American tribes in Florida, elsewhere. They'd fight in West Africa, Falkland Islands, Fiji, Peru, Sumatra, wherever else they were needed. And in 1847, uh, another very famous early Marine battle, 
This is uh, the Battle of Chapultepec. The Montezuma portion of that hymn comes from a large number of Marines, all suffering a really bad case of food poisoning in 1847. They suffered the worst case of Montezuma's revenge in documented medical history. First off, uh, they made the mistake of drinking tap water uh, in Tijuana. Then they had a big breakfast of refried bean and cheese burritos, and the cheese was rancid. As it turns out, the beans were also rancid, and the tortillas uh, were not made of flour. Uh, yeah, they were made of uh, old, even rancid ear beans and cheese that people had thrown up. The people had vomited onto uh, some kind of concrete slab, and it was hot, it was dry, and the puke dried up under the Mexican heat and the sun, and then it was rolled into tortillas. Because you know what? Because times were tough, okay? Sometimes all you had was some old puke to use as a tortilla. And then they all drank a bunch of coffee, like so much coffee. And then they went to a playground that had nothing but tire swings, the kind that spin around in a little circle and merry-go-rounds. And they just spun the shit out of each other around and around and around so fast. And then they had a stomach-punching contest. And then after that, uh, for lunch, they decided to eat old cans of sardines that had been left out in the sun for many years, many years. And the dead fish were, were kind of was starting to congeal with the oil around it into like a thick, like a viscous, mucousy soup type thing that was very hot and tangy and lumpy and, and hard, to, to, hard to even be near uh, without vomiting, really. And, and all of that, for some reason, gave them just violent diarrhea. And a lot of those Marines literally shit themselves to death. And that uh, was a battle. And that's what Montezuma's Revenge is. Of course, that's not true. But Montezuma's Revenge is a term for diarrhea when you get when you drink tap water in like a Latin country that you shouldn't drink tap water in. So that part's true. But in the case of the Marines, him, the Montezuma part does uh, come from 1847. Uh, from the Battle of uh, yeah Chapultepec, uh, fought during the Mexican-American War. In 1847, knowing that the capture of the Palacio Nacional uh, would greatly disrupt the Mexican army, Marines and Army soldiers led by Army General Winfield Scott stormed an enemy fortress during the Battle of Chapultepec. And uh, on, September on September 13th, 120 U.S. Marines and soldiers attacked Chapultepec Castle, a fort being used as a Mexican military academy to engage in the last battle before invading the Mexican capital. The fort sat atop uh, Chapultepec Hill, a heavily reinforced 200-foot hill that included a 12-foot wall designed to protect it uh, against enemy attacks. The American forces struggled as they attacked the steep hill from all directions, were greeted you know, by the Mexican army through massive amounts of musket fire and artillery bombardment. When they reached the western walls, the troops were forced to engage in vicious hand-to-hand -hand combat. Finally, they were able to ho hoist scaling ladders uh, up you know, to the fort, claim the defensive position, get over the wall. By the time the troops and General Scott entered the castle known as the Halls of Montezuma, 90% of the Marine officers and non-commissioned officers who were fighting in that battle were killed. They raised the stars and stripes, those who were left, over the palace to mark the victory. Upon returning home, the same Marines presented their flag to the commandant. The victory at the Halls of Montezuma remains a part of Marine Corps tradition, immortalized in the opening line of that Marine's hymn you just heard. So following this war, Marines would see action in Panama, Asia. They'd be uh, among the first Americans to ever set foot in Japan. John F. Mackey would be the first Marine to receive the Medal of Honor for his bravery during the Battle of Drury's Bluff when Confederate artillery fire from Fort Darling greatly damaged the ship. The then colonel was aboard the ironclad USS Galena in the James River near Richmond, Virginia. Most of Galena's naval gun crew were killed or wounded, and Mackey led a group of Marines in taking over the guns for the remainder of the battle. In the latter half of the 19th century, Marines fought and died in various skirmishes in Formosa, Korea, Samoa, China, Egypt, Argent Argentina, elsewhere all over the world. Sometime around 1883, the Marines adopted the current motto, Semper Fidelis, 
Latin for always faithful, often shortened by Marines to Semper Fi. I didn't, I, I love the sound Semper Fi. I, w- I always knew that was Marines. I didn't know it was always faithful. I thought it was something like, like you're going to get killed. I thought it was something like darker. I like it. Always faithful. Uh, During the Spanish-American War in 1898, Marines would lead American forces ashore in the Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico, demonstrating an exceptional readiness for quick deployment. Fifteen Marines would earn medals of honor in this war alone. Uh, Marines earned a reputation for being so good at storming enemy beaches. In 1900, the General Board of the United States Navy decided to give the Marine Corps primary responsibility for the seizure and defense of advanced naval bases. And if you're wondering, why is the Navy giving the Marines anything? Are they in charge of the Marines? Uh, no, not really, but there is a close connection between those two branches. And al- although the Marine Corps is a separate branch of the U.S. military, it does not have its own department within the Department of Defense, as the Army, Navy, and Air Force do. Uh, the Marine Corps is part of the Department of the Navy. At an administrative, political, and civilian level, the Marines operate beneath the Secretary of the Navy, technically. So what that means is, like, if you serve in the Navy, like, if you're listening right now and you serve in the Navy or have served in the Navy, uh, a lot of people don't know this. You can you can legally boss a Marine around as much as you want, as much as, much as you want to. It's unlimited. Uh, you, whatever your rank is, a private in the Navy can boss around a major in the Marines, and they don't they don't like it, but they got to do it. If you, if they don't follow your orders, they get court-martialed. So don't look don't look that up. Don't look it up. Don't Google it. Don't research it. Just trust me. Just take my word. And find a Marine and start bossing them around aggressively and continuously. And just let me know how that works out for you. No, uh, the Marines do operate beneath the Secretary of the Navy. However, the highest ranking Marine Corps officer, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, does not answer to any other military officer. He is the military head of the Corps. Every Marine Corps Commandant has lived in the Marine Barracks in Washington, D.C. It's the oldest official building in Washington that has remained in continuous use for its original purpose. Uh, World War One, Marines further added to their, you know, kind of hard fighting reputation then, fighting in numerous battles, such as the famous Battle of uh, Bilou, uh, Bilou Wood in, in 1918, uh, deep in Bilou Wood, uh, just outside of Paris, the 4th Marine Brigade fought tenaciously against German soldiers. The Marines suffered heavy losses, were pinned down by machine gun fire. U.S. Marines under General James Harbord led the attack. Uh, against four German divisions positioned in the woods and by the end of the first day suffered more than a 1,000 casualties. For the next three weeks, the Marines, backed by U.S. Army artillery, launched many attacks into the forested area, but German uh, German General uh, Eric uh, Lundendorf was determined to deny the Americans a victory. Lundendorf continually brought up reinforcements from the rear and the Germans attacked the U.S. forces with machine guns, artillery, gas, Fuck, that is suck, man. Gas attacks. Ignoring calls to withdraw, one uh, captain famously said, Retreat? Hell, we just got here. They have the best quotes. The Marines held their ground against uh, constant German assaults. They braved withering machine gun fire, poison gas again, were often forced to fight hand-to-hand with bayonets, with few grenades and no signal flares left. Uh, Some Marine forces launched an assault with fixed bayonets, seizing enemy positions. Marine riflemen demonstrated their superior marksmanship, shredding the lines of an oncoming German counterattack. Finally, on June 26th, after 20 days of intense fighting, the Marines won the Battle of Bilou Wood, but at the cost of nearly 10,000 dead, wounded, or missing in action. More Marines died at World War I's Battle of Bilou Wood than in their entire history up to that point. The German survivors, exhausted and wounded, gave a fitting nickname that suited the relentless fighting spirit of the opponent, the Devil Dogs. Ah, that's a cool name for Marines, man. Sounds like, uh, sounds like Bojangles. Is Bojangles a Marine? I think he might be. I think he might be a devil dog of some kind. At the end of World War I, um, that takes us kind of to the beginning of Chesty Puller's service in the Marine Corps. So let's back up a bit uh, to the beginning of Chesty's life, and let's see it through to its very end with a big old 
Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Lewis Burwell Chessy Puller was born in West Point, Virginia on June 26, 1898 to Matthew and Martha Puller. He had two older sisters, Emily and Patty. Matthew was a wholesale grocer who traveled often for work, and Martha was a stay-at-home mom. How fitting is that that this famed military man was born in West Point? I mean, now, the U.S. Military Academy is actually in West Point, New York, not West Point, Virginia, where he was born, but still. Uh, West Point, Virginia is a tiny little town, about 3,500 people, uh, up from about 1,000 people when Chesty was born. The town was named after John West, the governor of Virginia, from 1635 to 1637, who at one time owned the land the city sits upon. Uh, the current site of West Point was, was once the site of Cinquitec, a Native American village of the local uh, Mataponi, an Algonquin-speaking tribe affiliated with, affiliated with the uh, Powhatan Confederacy. Despite American settlers living in the area since the 17th century, the town of West Point wasn't incorporated until 1870. Uh, West Point, due to its location on the York River, roughly 40 miles from Chesapeake Bay, was a thriving commercial point, uh, port and tourist destination known partially for an abundance of crabs and oysters to be taken out of the rivers. The York River is formed at West Point by the confluence of two other rivers, uh, the Mataponi and the Pamunkey. Uh, so there's actually three rivers in the area. I've seen pictures, and it's a very quaint just scenic little town. And when Chesty was born, it was a carnival town. In the summer, there were tourists, roller coaster, carny shows, trained bears, trapeze artists, that kind of stuff. And as a, as a baby, Chesty was given to the carnies. And that is how you turn a baby into a fighting machine. You give it to carnies to have free reign over it. And if that baby can figure out how to wrestle an elephant ear and some funnel cakes away from a bearded lady or a lobster boy, well, then you know what? There's not going to be anything in the world that can stop him. Uh, no, Chesty was raised by his parents, not carnies. Uh, and the Pullers were one of the first non-native families to settle in that area. The first, uh, Lewis Burrell, was born in Bedfordshire, England, 1621, came to Virginia as a military man, sergeant major. There were a lot of military men in Chester's family. His grandfather, John Puller, had been killed in a cavalry fight in Kelly Ford in the Civil War. A cousin, Paige McCarthy, a Confederate soldier, had fought in the last legal duel in the state of Virginia, killing a man over an insult to the reputation of a woman in Richmond. Man, those were weird times, right? Somebody insults a lady that you're, you're fond of, and you challenge them to a fight to the death. <laughs> that guy was killed. A, uh, a great uncle, Robert Williams, uh, deserted the South in the Civil War to command a federal division at Gettysburg, which uh, led him into battle against three of his own brothers. Another cousin of Puller's was George S. Patton, the famed four-star general who led troops all over Europe in World War II. Might have to suck on Patton down the road, uh, for sure, actually. At two years old, in 1900, Little Chesty won a beautiful baby contest in West Point. The man who would go on to inspire thousands to fight and kill and die for the country was once West Point's cutest chubby-cheeked little baby. Uh, Chesty was, by all accounts, a quiet kid, kind of kept to himself, tough kid. When he was four or five, he, he broke his arm in, in a fall, and when he visited the doctor weeks after having his arm put in a cast, the doctor realized his arm hadn't set right, and he just kind of suddenly snapped the bone apart again to reset it. No anesthetic. Legend has it uh, that Little Chesty grimaced, when this guy broke his arm, but did not make a sound. God, that's a tough kid if that's true. I'm thinking if I would have bawled for several hours, if that would have happened to me at the age of four or five. Very, very good chance I cry myself to sleep in that situation uh, at that night or, or at that age, you know. Uh, he was also a bookworm, a bookworm as a little kid, especially fond of books on war. Uh, he was raised around tales of war, tales of ancestors, bravery, and vicious battles or various battles being being told around the house. He grew he grew uh up listening to West Point Civil War veterans telling stories of their their times in the war. 
Like, you know, Thomas Stonewall Jackson was his idol. Another future suck. 1905, his brother Sam would be born. Another puller boy uh, who would go on to be a Marine. Man, the puller boys. Wonder how much they got teased for that name growing up. What you, what are you pulling? What are you pulling on, puller? You pulling on your ween? Is that, your, is that how your family got the name? From pulling weens? I bet your middle name is ween, isn't it? Weenie, ween puller? It's probably. I would think if boys, you know, back in 1905 were anything like they are now. Uh, 1908 tragedy strikes the Puller family. Chesty's uh, father, Matthew, dies after a long battle with cancer. After Matthew's uh, death, Martha immediately lets their hired help know they can no longer afford them, sells the family's horses and the family's carriage, and just like that, 10-year-old Chesty is the man of the house. He immediately starts to help bring in income for the family, trapping muskrats and selling their hides. No shit. Wish, wish I could have bought some, man. Wish I could have bought some. Some of, some of the time suck, you know, shirts, as you know, are made of uh, muskrat labia. And it would have been nice to support young Chesty's enterprise. He also starts hunting to bring home some food, wild turkey, squirrels, whatever kind of critter had meat on spoons and wasn't smart enough to hear little Chesty sneaking up on it with his rifle. It was fair game. Uh, he bought his own ammo because money was tight. He learned not only to hunt but to shoot accurately. Fifty years later, he'd reflect back on this time and say that he learned more in the woods, hunting and stalking, about the actual art of war than I ever learned in any school of any kind. Those days in the wood as a kid... Saved my life many a time in combat. Chesty also continued to read about warfare. Uh, while other kids are reading Huck Finn, he's reading about Genghis Khan and other ancient military leaders like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. Uh, he's also a scrappy kid who never backed down from a fight when some local older boys uh, beat up a friend of his. He organized a gang of other kids and put a beating on every kid who hurt his friend. After his dad died, he converted part of the horse stables the family was no longer using after they sold the horses to a boxing ring, and he and his friends would train and spar there after school. In 1913, at the age of 15, he gave away his sister Emily in marriage in place of his dad. In the summer of 1913, he also took a job in the town pulp mill, uh, working 12 hours a day for 15 cents an hour. When he wasn't working at the pulp mill, uh, he was hucking crabs at the gates of the beach park for tourists for 25 cents a dozen. He also worked hard in school, learning Latin. Uh, he expanded his wartime reading, reading uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars and its, its native Latin. 12 hours a day in the pulp mill, man. Do, do 15-year-olds pay dues like that anymore? If not, they should start, right? Build some character. You're not going to become a legend like Chesty Puller working five hours a day at a yogurt shop and spending four of those hours dicking around on Snapchat, all right? Chesty was a decent athlete in high school, playing baseball, football, basketball, competing in track. He wasn't always the best athlete on his team, but no one ever outworked him. Dude had a motor on him. Chesty himself uh, couldn't remember years later how he got his own nickname, uh, but it could have started when he played football. Someone who watched uh, his first game described him as a fullback with a chest like a powder pigeon. Well, he, well, he puffed it out, I guess. Um, 1916, Chesty tried to enlist in the Army and fight in the border war with Mexico, but he needed his mother's consent to do so, and she wouldn't give it. Remember that war? We've talked about it in both the uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Texas Ranger episodes. 1917, he graduated high school and then enrolled in the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. He wasn't given leave to return home to visit for the first full 10 months, even spending Thanksgiving and Christmas at the Academy. <laughs> it didn't seem to bother him one bit. Uh, he went out for both the football and the baseball teams, didn't make the cut. Uh, he finished the year without a single demerit, though, which was almost unheard of for a cadet. He was diligent, but not a particularly gifted student. Academically, he finished 177th out of a class of 233. Uh, Chesty, as I learned reading a lot about him these past few days, never loved the classroom, always preferred the field. He was a doer much more than he was a studier. And a, he learned by getting your hands dirty, right? Getting his hands dirty, you know? 
one thing he hated about this time, uh, about his time at the Institute was that they didn't have guns. Normally they would, but World War I was raging on in Europe and all arms and ammunition were being used in the war effort. At the conclusion of his first year, he decided not to return for a second. He wanted to get over there. He wanted to go to World War I. So on June 27th, 1918, he enlisted in the Marines and headed out for boot camp on Paris Island, South Carolina, eager to ship off and fight for his country. Well, Chesty's uh, boot boot camp drill instructor, Corporal John Despair, uh, found him to be a natural leader. Three days after the start of camp, he was given a platoon to handle. A few weeks in, Despair would say, You know, I always have to tell him to look mean and nasty out there marching, but I never had to tell him. He's a natural, and he never makes the same mistake twice. He's already made the company number one for parades, and he did it by himself. Despar also examined uh, Puller on military history and said that Puller gave him an inferiority complex that he already knew more than he did. At the end of camp, Puller was among the top 5% of his class selected for non-commissioned officer school, and he took uh, drill instructor's training. For two months, he went through intensive drills in bayonet, rifle, boxing, judo, and infantry drill. Then in October, Puller was prepped to ship out to Europe to fight in World War I. Right, his big moment he's been waiting for. He packs up, heads out to Hoboken, New Jersey, where he's going to ship out across the Atlantic. And then the move was postponed for a couple days and... And then on November 11th, 1918, an armistice was signed between Germany and the Allied forces and it ended the war. We referenced uh, Armistice Day in the Time Suck way back in March, actually, the suck on Hitler's Third Reich. Uh, as one of the events, you know, kind of leading towards that. Uh, so instead of shipping off to Europe, he finished his non-commissioned officer's training, graduated on June 4th, 1919 as a second lieutenant. He ranked 128th in his class. And then two weeks later, after finishing machine gun school on June 16th, after, bre- after being a Marine Corps officer, after all that, for less than half a month, he's discharged along with a lot of other Marines, due to post-war military cutbacks. It's peacetime now, and they just didn't think they needed that many Marines, so he gets cut. Uh, Puller returns home for a few days, and then he takes off for Long Island to enlist in a Polish-American army that was going to head off to Europe to help liberate Poland, uh, parts of which were still under foreign German-Soviet control. You know, they're still fighting for boundaries and stuff. Puller wasn't even Polish. He just really wanted to fight. He wanted to get after it. And on the way to Long Island, he stopped in Washington, D.C., where he ran into a Marine named Captain uh, Rupertus, uh, who told him that if he wanted to fight, he should head to Haiti, where he could get commissioned to serve in Haiti as lieutenant, uh, you know, training the newly formed uh, Zendemarie uh, de Haiti, uh, a, a, con, a constabulary force that consisted of Haitian enlisted personnel and Marine officers. Rebel forces in Haiti had created an enormous amount of uh, governmental instability in the region since 1914, almost a quarter of a century since the nation gained independence from France, and the Haitian government had requested U.S. military support to suppress uprisings. Since 1916, Marines and Marine-led combat forces had policed the jungles and cities of Haiti, and between 1916 and 1918, uh, there had been 2,000 deaths as a result of fighting, almost all of which had been Haitian. NCOs who enlisted and did well could serve for years under the theory that the longer you stayed there, the more familiar you'd become with the language, the customs, and the terrain, and you'd become more effective at your job. So 1919, Puller arrives in Haiti. Uh, the rebels are attacking government-led forces uh, and the Marines. And the rebels that were doing this were the Kakaos, uh, fierce local tribesmen who led raids on both uh, remote villages and sometimes the cities of Haiti as well. By the time Chesty had made it to Haiti, the battle has been going on for five years. Two weeks after arriving in Haiti, every single last cacao man, woman, child, uh, were put to death. 95% of them at the hands of Chesty himself. He piled the heads of the men into one pyramid, the heads of the women in another, and the kid heads in a third pyramid. Uh, and then he poured concrete all over them, and they still stand today around the, uh, the boundaries of Port-au-Prince. The Skull Pyramids of Haiti, a little reminder that you do not fuck with Chesty. A lot of tourists sit on those and get their pictures taken. Of course not. 
not, that did not happen. I went a little Mongol horde with the whole head pyramid thing, went a little Nishapur. Uh, no, Puller was thrown into fighting within days of arriving, though. He was, he was thrown into a convoy leading 25 mounted local soldiers and a Haitian sergeant, taking ammunition and shoes randomly. <laughs> I think the shoe part is random. Uh, from a town called uh, Mirabale uh, to the town of Los Cohobos. None of his men even spoke English other than understanding a few basic orders. While going around a bend along a jungle trail with lush jungle vegetation on either side of it, you know, to reduce visibility, they ran into a band of roughly 100 cacao warriors who were equally surprised but not on horseback. Puller gave the order to charge them immediately, fired his weapon right away. The cacaos quickly cut into the jungle, but not before Puller shot one of them. 21 years old, and he has killed his first enemy combatant, he also gets his first taste of how barbaric war can be the next day when he when he sees a uh, local Haitian soldier from another company pull two rotten cacao heads from his saddlebags, just carrying them around as trophies. Uh, a few weeks into his Haitian commission, Louis uh, began planning actual military attacks as opposed to getting caught off guard. He was learning enough of the local language, Creole, a uh, derivative of French, to communicate more effectively with his soldiers. He would actually kind of know what the hell his Haitian scouts were you know, telling him now. One night, his scouts came upon a small uh, party of cacao celebrating a victory at night, gathering around uh, some campfires. Puller prepared an attack at dawn, the noise of him setting up his attack covered by their cacao war drums. Uh, he placed a number of his men in line along a ridge and sent crews with three machine guns up to uh, another ridge behind the cacao where they would cover the enemy rear. He had a few locals with him uh, who you know, could stand in, understand English well enough now, and he told one of them, uh, that when his men on the ridge would open fire in the morning, the cacao would run in the opposite direction towards the rear flank, who would then mow them down with that machine gun fire, and the plan worked. Puller's unit took uh, no hits whatsoever when they opened the attack in the morning, and they killed 17 cacao, possibly wounding many more. They also recovered over 200 chickens. The cacao left behind pounds and pounds of rice, and they ate like kings. And he's doing this at 21. Holy shit, that blows my mind. When I was 21, I was in charge of nothing. And thank God, rightfully so. Uh, I sure as shit wasn't leading men into battle and planning and carrying out machine gun attacks in the fucking jungle with troops who didn't even speak my language a thousand miles from home in another country. When I was 21, I was getting blackout drunk once or twice a week at least. Uh, I was writing songs for my for my band and <laughs> and trying to sleep with a lot of my female friends. Uh, I had a work-study job helping social workers where I had to supervise visits between kids and the parents who had lost custody of those kids, and that seemed like way too much responsibility. Probably was. I was hungover a fair amount while supervising a lot of those visits. Uh, I wasn't in a jungle. No one was trying to kill me. I wasn't responsible for anyone's life or anything's life. I wasn't responsible for anything. I didn't even have a pet fish. Well, on another patrol months later, a local lieutenant who had spent many years fighting in Haiti saw Puller fall to the ground when, he, uh, when they heard enemy fire, and he told him after the skirmish that he couldn't do that anymore. Told him his men needed to see him be fearless to inspire bravery in his unit, and that lesson really seemed to stick. His chesty would become famous for walking around a firefight in the midst of battle as if the enemy just didn't have the balls to shoot him. Soon, tales of his bravery under fire began to spread around Haiti. Uh, he wasn't a leader to hang back and send his troops up ahead to do the fighting for him. He was often a man uh, out in the front with his men. He, he met some veteran Marines in Haiti as well, such as uh, Louis Kukela, a uh, man who'd won the Medal of Honor in World War I, and Kukela told him the importance of concentration of force. Kukela thought that they were going about the fighting in Haiti the wrong way, sending small patrols into the jungle to fight a few cacao here and there. You know, he thought that they should mass one large force, and that force should plow relentlessly through the jungle and exterminate the cacao in mass, be done with it, and end the revolt. And uh, Puller began to learn how to improvise in Haiti as well, carving wooden stakes for men to rest their rifle barrels on when they lay on the ground to shoot because his unit was having accuracy problems. 
He also talked local brass and let him use local prisoners to cut airstrips into the jungle uh, forest so they could use planes, you know, have them land and they could use them to spot cacao camps from the sky. Once he did that, got it figured out, started doing those reconnaissance missions. He got a local pilot to improvise a way to drop small bombs, small munitions out of his plane. And they began bombing cacao encampments. And it's believed these first flights are the first examples of air support being used with Marine Corps ground forces. In 1920, after being there about eight months, Puller was promoted to command the subdistrict of Porta Piment in a remote corner of southern Haiti where he was put on near constant patrol. By April, he had contracted malaria. Uh, he recovered well enough to be back on patrol within a week. It's a tough son of a bitch. Shortly after uh, won the first of his many awards, uh, the Medaille Militaire of the Republic of Haiti awarded for valor in action with fine disregard for his own life. Chesty's actions in Haiti did not go unnoticed by Marine superiors, and in early 1921, he was recommended for permanent commission back into the Marines. However, he failed his entr entrance examinations to do so. Again, he didn't like the classrooms much. Later in 1924, while still in Haiti, he was recommended again, and this time he got in. Now he's, now he's ranked as a second lieutenant. By the time he left Haiti in early 1924, the now 25-year-old Chesty had already fought in over 40 battles. That's nuts. 1924, uh, Chesty reported to Portsmouth, Virginia, to the Marine barracks at the Navy Yard, where he served as post-adjutant uh, under the commander, General Carter Berkeley, in early 1925. He was sent to the basic school in Philadelphia to, re to receive further instruction in fundamental military skills. He learned how to handle heavy artillery, amongst other skills there. He moved up to the Quantico, a Marine base near Washington, D.C. in 1925, where he was assigned to be in charge of the Marine Drill Attachment. For years, Army, Navy, and Coast Guard teams had outshone the Marines in the National Drill Competition held in Boston's Mechanics Hall. The Marines had never won. Puller took, took over, and the Marines won immediately. One sergeant who, who watched the first Puller-led drill attachment said... Puller won that cup all by himself. He didn't look like flesh and blood. He stepped out so smartly and proud and soldierly that it was like watching a mechanical man. He just carried them on his back, and it was hard to keep your eyes off him to watch the ranks. The governor of Massachusetts presented the championship trophy to Puller, and the Marine top brass were thrilled with his victory, man. The legend continues to grow. Shortly after the victory, Puller was sent to Pensacola, Florida, for training in flight. Uh, he'd wanted to learn how to fly for the Marines since those initial bombings and scouting runs in Haiti. However, he just wasn't cut out for it. A, re a review medical board found him medically fit to fly, but not temperamentally cut out for it. Apparently, he liked to come in a little too hot for landings and was uh, a little too uh, loosey-goosey with his turns. You know, he can't storm through the air like he can on the ground, I guess. Oh, well. On the ground, you know, uh, uh, the ground would be a perfectly good place for him to build his, you know, his legacy, his legend. In 1926, Chesty went home to West Point on a few days' leave, ended up showing his softer side for a second, went to a dance in the nearby town of Urbana, less than 30 miles away, and the 27-year-old noticed that Virginia Evans, the 16-year-old daughter of a family friend, Judge Evans, had grown up considerably and was now a beautiful young woman being courted by a number of suitors. She was now known uh, also as, uh, as Busty. That was her nickname. It was, it was Chesty and Busty. No, wait, no, uh, Bresty. It was Chesty and Bresty, and they made quite a pair. Uh, no, she was not known as Busty or Breasty. At least not that I know of. I couldn't find her bra cup size anywhere in my extensive research, uh, and I researched that a lot, so much. No, I did not. But sweet Lucifina tried to talk me into it. Be gone, Lucifina. No, I believe she was simply known as Virginia, and Virginia danced with a variety of young men, and he danced only with her. The fourth time he danced with her, after barely speaking at all the previous three dances, he asked her to marry him, and that was when to catch a predators, Chris Hansen popped out and arrested him for being a borderline pedophile. No, calm down, military listeners, at, at ease, at ease, at, at fooling around, at kidding. No, totally normal in uh, 1926 for a 27-year-old to chase after a 16-year-old. 
uh, in 2017, uh, you go to jail for that. The age of consent in Virginia uh, is 18. I didn't even have to look that up. I have uh, I have the age of consent for every state in the country me- memorized and have had that for many years. I can't tell you how many times that knowledge has saved my ass. Kidding again. Uh, being, a, being a creep. No, about the memorization. I'm kidding. Not the age of consent. It really is uh, 18. And it's funny how things have changed in that regard in not, in not that long of a time. You know, truly, totally normal in 1926. 16-year-olds, fair game for, for a man of 27. Now, you know, 27-year-old touches a 16-year-old, he, he might get touched himself in jail a few months later. Well, of course, Virginia did not accept his, his offer for marriage. She barely knew him. Uh, she said, according to my primary source for this episode, Marine, The Life of Chesty Puller, a biography written by historian Burke Davis, she said, heavens no, I couldn't do that. I haven't even finished school. And then Chesty said, you will. And then a few weeks later, he sent her three orchids, which were not cheap. And when she wrote him a thank you letter for the beautiful flowers, he wrote back, marry me and I'll buy you three dozen orchids every month of your life. And then he left uh, to take an assignment with the Marines in Hawaii. He wouldn't see her again for over a decade. Man, maybe maybe she would have said yes, you know, had Chesty's face been nice and smooth. You know, I was thinking about that. Thanks to today's sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Dollar Shave Club. You've heard me talk about the amazing shave I get from my Dollar Shave Club razor with the executive handle, especially when I use it with a Dr. Carver shave butter. Well, not only am I still using both these products, I've added even more DSC to my daily routine. Right, Dollar Shave Club doesn't just make awesome quality razors, solid handles, and shave butter. They also make products for your hair, face, skin, shower, everything you need. They have me looking and feeling amazing, and it's all uh, their own original stuff. Right, They only use the finest premium ingredients, and they deliver it to you, just like they do the razors. That means no more annoying trips to the store, cruising up and down aisles, looking at shelf upon shelf of, you know, what the hell is that, and what do I do with it? I use Dollar Shave Club uh, for razors now, a body cleanser, hair gel, and well... You know, uh, even butt wipes. Seriously. Keep everything clean and not, you know, let it get torn up and rugged down there. Dollar Shave Club has you covered from head to toe to butthole. And and now's a great time to give Dollar Shave Club a try. You can get your first month of their best razor along with travel size versions of shave butter, body cleanser, and yes, even butt wipes, or as I like to call them, butthole wipes. BHWs for five bucks. After that, replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the DSC starter set. Get yours for just $5. Five bucks. Exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash timesuck. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash timesuck. Do it. Get that Heine sparkling and fresh. All right. So Chesty does not get uh, Virginia to immediately marry him. Uh, he has to head out to Hawaii. Puller arrives in Hawaii late July 1926. And he gets to work improving things for the 620 Marines stationed on the islands. He realizes that the islands are supposed to be guarded primarily with artillery guns, but the guns are nowhere to be found. They're not being used. He finally does locate them and finds them in storage and then realizes they're missing key components to actually make them fucking work. You know, as, as, they, as they were, you couldn't load ammunition into them, couldn't get them to fire anything. So he gets that stuff sent to the islands, gets them put together. Then he instructs them in Hawaii how to actually use the things teaches a gunnery class to get the troops up to speed with machine guns as well. In interviews later, he'd admit to being pretty frustrated with Marine Command in Hawaii. He found the local Marine leaders uh, there to be living a life of leisure, operating under the delusion that Hawaii would never be attacked. He'd say, it was no surprise to me when the Japanese caught us asleep at Pearl Harbor. Actually, uh, full disclosure, he did not say Japanese. He said, he said Japs, not Japanese. I, I will be changing that to Japanese in all quotes, uh, but I felt compelled to just, you know, let you know what, what actual words were spoken. You know, but before you judge him too harshly, just like with the 16-year-old girl situation, it was a different time. Uh, teens were up for grabs, and Asians were, 
uh, well, uh, constantly and, and casually referred to with racial slurs, I guess. Anywho, uh, Chessy said of, of Hawaii, I've been through there many times since and served there later. And I bet we're in the same condition now, more or less. Our trouble is that common sense has gone out the window and we make generals today on the basis of their ability to write a damn letter. Those kinds of men can't get us ready for war. Oh, that is fucking, that's classic chesty puller right there. He did not suffer fools lightly. And he showed great disdain towards those who didn't prepare their men or their base properly for war. He hated military brass who earned promotions through kissing ass and playing the game as opposed to battle. Anything Chesty was in charge of ran like a fucking clock. And he was as hard on himself as he was on the men he led. While in Hawaii, a gun accidentally went off. The Chesty hadn't thoroughly checked an inspection, an inspection that he had called for. Uh, he'd done everything except look into the barrel, and there was a bullet in the chamber. And, uh, and again, even though he was the one running the inspection, he fined himself a hundred bucks. Not a small amount of money for a lieutenant in the 20s. Not a small amount at all. And then he gave the hundred bucks to his men to buy some beer and throw a party with. Man, that is how you become beloved. Uh, Puller became quite the marksman while in Hawaii, getting so good he qualified to join the Pearl Harbor rifle team and competed in a marksman's competition in San Diego in 1928. He stayed in San Diego for, for most of 1928 and then shipped out for his next round of actual combat in December of 1928, heading down to Nicaragua. Now, similar to the situation nearly a decade before in Haiti, Puller arrived in a nation destabilized by constant attacks on the existing government by rebel forces. Marines had been brought in to stabilize things and squash a tribal resistance, led by rebel chief Augusto Caesar Sandino. Now, to be fair to uh, Augusto, Sandino is revered now in Nicaragua. In 2010, was unanimously named a national hero by the nation's Congress. Uh, the U.S. occupation was seen by many as there not to protect the common Nicaraguan, but to prop up a, a U.S.-friendly kind of puppet government. But none of that had anything to do with Chessie. Uh, his nation told him to support government A and fight bad guy B, and that's exactly what the hell he did. Chesty had his orders, and his orders were to fight against the forces of Sandino, and he did that very well. Shortly after arriving, Chessie was assigned the task of heading to the town of Corinto and restoring order after a mob had shot a Marine there. Found out who, he found out who the top native boss was, this local chief that was kind of like, you know, in charge of that mob that attacked the Marine, a Marine named Lieutenant Stevens, uh, who, who did live, and, and walked into this guy's office, this chief's office, uh, where the man was based, and told him if there was any further trouble in Corinto, any at all, he personally would be held responsible, and he would pay for future trouble with his life in no uncertain terms. He's told, he tells this guy this. Well, the guy doesn't like to hear that, and the guy starts to uh, motion, you know, kind of moves his hand and starts to grab a, for his gun. And Jesse tells him, go ahead, use it if you can. We'll settle this once and for all. You better be fast. Well, I guess the, the chief thought about it, hesitated, and, and then put his hands flat out on his desk to show that he was not going to grab the gun. And then Puller just turned his back to the guy and walked out, and that story spread around the country. Dude was bad to the bone. Unbelievable. Hearing that story of, uh, of Chesty reminded me of that scene in Tombstone, my favorite movie of all time, uh, where Kurt Russell's Wyatt Earp confronts Billy Bob Thornton's Johnny Tyler at the Pharaoh table. Remember that? That chubby Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, Johnny threatens to draw his gun and shoot him and Wyatt rocks, he walks right up close to him face to face and he says, go ahead, skin that smoke wagon, see what happens. And then when Billy Bob hesitates, Wyatt slaps him in the face. Ah, oh, it's so good. And says, I'm getting tired of your gas, now jerk that pistol and go to work. He doesn't, he slaps him again. I said throw down, boy. And he slaps him again. He says, you gonna do something? I just stand there and bleed. And he takes his gun from him. God, I love that movie so much. But, you know, I, I would see that movie and think, yeah, that's cool. But, I mean, who does that in real life? No one. Well, then I read about Chesty Puller and I think, oh, all right, all right. At least one guy does shit like that in real life. At least one guy's done stuff like that. Just uh, dares a man to shoot him, stares that man down. 
Uh, Puller goes uh, Puller goes right back to work in the jungles in Nicaragua, killing enemies with both a rifle and a pistol in close combat. He was respected and admired by his fellow soldiers once again, especially those under his command. One of the soldiers who served under his leadership would say of his time with Puller, he was a common sense officer, and you always knew where you stood with him. When he was displeased about something I'd done, he'd never chewed me out, as so many inexperienced officers would have done. He would say, if I'd been doing that, I would have done it this way, and that would be the end of it. We got on like brothers. Puller was so effective fighting bandits in Nicaragua that he was awarded his first Navy Cross in his first year in the country, the recommendation for the war, citing five fights against superior numbers from February 16 to August 19, 1930, without loss to himself, and while confiscating an impressive loot of munitions, animals, food, and captured military dispatches. The Navy Cross, by the way, is the United States military's second highest decora uh, decoration awarded for valor in combat. The Navy Cross is awarded primarily to a member of the United States Navy, U.S. Marine Corps, and U.S. Coast Guard when operating under the Department of the Navy for extraordinary heroism. And if you got one of those, man, you are a seriously brave human being. Uh, Puller returned to the United States in 1931, completed the year-long company officer's course at Fort Benning, Georgia. Lewis left Benning, carrying more distrust over the overschooling of military men than ever, saying, The trouble with this school business is that we've taken it too far, and we sit around classrooms and will the conditions of battle. Of course, in actual battle, you can't will anything, not a damn thing, because the enemy will do whatever you don't want him to do, or expect him to do almost every time. Then, when the, when the actual warfare, you know, are studied back in the schools, the staff officers and planners, most of whom who have never seen battles, wonder what went wrong with their plants. Well, the more I learn about Chester, the more I'd like to go back and have a few drinks with him. Kind of, kind of doubt he'd be interested uh, in having drinks with me, though. You know, he'd probably be a little disappointed. Like, you do, you do what for a living? You tell silly stories and talk about your dog, scaring you in the dark when you're doing some, some research about a goddamn haunted house? You take off your pants. I want to I wanna see what kind of hole you got down there where a pair of nuts should be. Haunted house. Can't take a bayonet and gut you. Can it? Well, I can. After completing the school in Puller, uh, who received an unsatisfactory evaluation on using a machine gun, uh, returned to Nicaragua in late 1932, where he earned a second Navy Cross for leading American Marines and Nicaraguan National Guardsmen into battle against Sandinista rebels in the last major battle of the Sandino Rebellion near Alsace, uh, Alsace on December 26, 1932, kicking ass with a machine gun. Right? He was like the Allen Iverson of the Marines when it came to school versus actual battle. You know, just, man, we, man, we talk about practice. We talk about practice, not a game, not a game. We talk about practice. He left in 1933, headed for San Diego, and then almost immediately shipped out to China just a few months later, where he trained Marines stationed in Beijing. In China, there were Marines of the 4th Regiment stationed in Shanghai, China from 1927 to 1941 uh, to protect American citizens and property in the Shanghai International Settlement during the Chinese Revolution and the Second Sino-Japanese War. China and Japan would go to war against each other in 1937. Their battles would flow right into World War II. Puller gained intimate knowledge of how the Japanese military fought during his time in Beijing, Shanghai, information that would be helpful years later when he would lead his men into battle against Chinese forces during the Korean War. In 1934, Puller left China to serve aboard the USS Augusta, a cruiser in the Asiatic fleet that was commanded at the time by then-Captain Chester W. Nimitz. Uh, Nimitz? There we go. Nimitz. Nimitz, man. Sounds a little like Nimrod. Hail Nimrod! Maybe Chesty served the god of suck. Hmm, who knows? The Augusta visited Japan, Australia, elsewhere, a show of military might to remind the world just kind of kind of who they were fucking with if they decided to mess with the U.S. of A. You know, just show up, just say, hello, people of Tokyo, check out, check out my ship. Take a, take a close look, if you would, at those massive guns. A lot of them, a lot of massive guns, man. 
Man, sure would suck to get your coastline just blasted by those things, wouldn't it? Yeah, man, sure would. Anyway, just thought we'd drop by and, you know, let you, you know, look at our many, many guns and take a second to notice the aggressive and bloodthirsty look in our soldiers' eyes, and, and that's all. So, yeah, we're going to take off now. Got some more places to visit. Uh, have a great weekend. Well, Puller gets recommended for a promotion uh, from first lieutenant to, to, to captain while aboard. After studying naval gunnery while aboard the Augusta, Puller passes his captain's exam in summer of 1935. Uh, despite keeping in touch with Virginia for the past several years, he is a confirmed bachelor. He's now at the age of 36. Apparently, he says to a friend around this time, the Marine Corps ought not to permit marriage. A monastic order. All the way. Married men make poor soldiers. If the government wanted you to have a wife, they'd issue you one. And the spring of 1936, guy has the best quotes. Spring of 1936, Puller was sent to Philadelphia to ready young Marines for battle and teach at the Marine Corps basic school. He taught soldiers how to fight in a jungle, how to use a bayonet, how to use your terrain to your advantage. Colonel Turnage of the basic school would say of Puller, Lewis left nothing undone. We had the best classes in 1935 and 1936 that I ever knew in the Marine Corps, and Puller did a great deal for that second class. So he was not only a great Marine, he was a, he was a great maker of great Marines. Puller, now back on the East Coast, rekindled his pursuit of Virginia, who he'd been writing letters to for years. He invited her to the Army-Navy game in 1936. And after that game, he began taking long trips down to Saluda, Saluda, Virginia, to see her almost every weekend. In April of 1937, he asked her to marry him again, and she accepted. She told her mom while they were courting, he's the most attentive thing you ever saw. He writes me every day. The two were married on November 13, 1937. Puller was 39 Virginia was 28, so not as bad anymore, not as bad as 16 and 27. On November 14th, the two uh, then, tragically, both died instantly. Uh, when the train they were uh, heading on to take them back to Saluda ran into another train in Washington, D.C. So that's all for this week. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this Chesty Puller Suck. Man, sorry about uh, the abrupt ending, but that's how life works sometimes, you know? Stories just are what they are. No, that would be a terrible way to end this. No, no, they're still fine in 1937. In the spring of 1939, they're still fine. The Pullers uh, left Philadelphia where Chessie was stationed and took off aboard the USS Augusta again. In May of 1940, Puller was assigned to Shanghai, was promoted to major. Also in 1940, his first child was born, uh, Virginia McCandish Puller. Man, these people really like Virginia, don't they? I mean, they're both from Virginia. His wife's name is Virginia. Now they have a daughter named Virginia. We fucking get it. You really, really, really like Virginia. Maybe I should change my name to Idaho. You know, Idaho Cummins. You know, I could change my one of my kids' names to Ida, and I could change the other kid's name to Ho. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm Idaho. These are my two kids, Ida, Ho. We're from, we're from Ida, we're from Idaho. Ida, Ho, get, get back over here. Ida, Ho. I'm, not, I'm done talking about Idaho. Oh, man. His wife and daughter headed back to the States shortly after his little, little Virginia, uh, her birth. Japanese had taken over parts of China by this time, including an area around Shanghai, but were not yet at war with America. It was a tense time to be there. Puller and a Navy captain uh, were having dinner one evening with two Japanese officers, and after one too many sakis, one of these Japanese men said, Soon, American, we will be at war. I will meet you, you and a cruiser, me and a destroyer. We will sink you, and I will steam by. You will shout from the water, Help me, friend. Then I will stop my ship and kick you down with my feet in your face and say, Die, you American son of a bitch. That is actually how that account is written. Uh, I, 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 that's, I recited it as it was written in Burke Davis's uh, Chesty biography. Did that Japanese officer really say all of that? That was a very specific death scenario he supposedly laid out, right? Well, who does that? You, I will see you in 12 months and seven days, 900 kilometers due east of Tokyo. 
You will look at me through binoculars, but it will be foggy that day, and it will be hard to use them. Plus, one of the lenses has a small crack in it, which will irritate you greatly. And you'll give up and wave in my general direction and, and, and will believe to see me wave back at you. But you will be mistaken. I will not be waving. It will only seem that way because you you can see my general shape but not make out finer details due to the, the distance between our ships and the fog and the binoculars not being used. But instead of waving, I will actually be flipping you off. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you. That's what I will be saying. And you can't hear me say that because of the combined noise of both of our ship's engines and the sounds of the sea and a few seagulls and such, squawking and whatnot, and then I will fire a torpedo and it will sink your battleship. But you will you will jump off. It will not sink you. You will jump off into the water. You will avoid sinking with the ship and then I will row to you in a small lifeboat and I will throw a life jacket to you and you will put it on and you will swim to me and I will extend my hand to you and you will take my hand but then realize I've rubbed my whole arm down with olive oil. Ha 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 Gotcha! I am too slippery now and you can't get a grip and then and then you realize that the life jacket I gave you has a small hole in it and you will start to sink in the water and hypothermia will start to sink in and then I will say, remember when we talked about this? I told you this would happen and then you will say, oh, oh yeah. Oh, I forgot. Oh yeah, now I do remember you saying it. And then I'll say, remember how I told you a shark will get you? And then you'll say, no, I don't, I don't remember that. I Wait, I know I thought you said you were going to shoot me. And then I will say, Oh, that's right. I, I did say that. And then I will shoot you and you will be dead, you American son of a bitch. And then I feel like, you know, the other Japanese officer jumps in at that point. Just, oh, I, I'm, I am I am really sorry about this, uh, guys. He, he gets like this sometimes when he's drunk. He gets very threatening uh, and, and very specific and long-winded uh, about his threats. We're, we're going to go down. This has gotten very uncomfortable. Uh, August 1941, Chesty heads back to the States to Quantico to prepare for war. Things are looking bad in both Asia, you know, with the Japanese and in Europe with Germany. Uh, he's ordered to report to Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina in October, where he would command the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. The 7th Marines, including Puller's Battalion, were combined with the Battalion of the 11th Marine Artillery into a new unit, the 3rd uh, Marine Br Brigade. And this brigade was the first expeditionary force to leave the United States during the war. Its men began boarding ships in Norfolk, Virginia on Easter Sunday, April 5th, 1942. Puller's final act before leaving was to turn over his bank account to his brother-in-law with instructions on how to take care of his lady and his daughter which included the instructions to have Virginia get a dozen red roses on the 13th of every month, their anniversary. Man, he may not be around much, but he sure knows to, uh, how to make a gal feel special, doesn't he? He sends letters damn near every day when he's deployed anywhere for the rest of his life. Uh, before engaging the Japanese in combat, Puller trained his men in Samoa with grueling exercises. He led his troops one day in a particularly long march in intense heat and told his men that if anyone were to stagger over to the roadside and sit down, they would be court-martialed. The march was 22 miles long, in intense heat. Several men lost consciousness and collapsed. Private Gerald White wrote in his diary of the day, Puller must have marched twice the distance we did. For all day long, he kept marching up and down the column, jaunty as a bantam rooster, pipe clenched in his teeth, ever alert to see that men who were succumbing to the heat, exhaustion, or blisters were taken care of by corpsmen. Many times today, I saw him take a machine gun or mortar off the shoulder of some Marine whose fanny was dragging and, carried to, and carry it to give the guy some poor, to give the poor guy some respite. Man, love it. Dude Lee is tough and leads by example. Also, while, while in Samoa, Puller is promoted to lieutenant colonel, and while there, he hears uh, of a battle in Guadalcanal in which one unit killed 670 Japanese soldiers and reportedly said, 670, they mowed him down. One day we'll be giving him hell like that too, better than that. Dude was hungry for war. And then two weeks later, he got his wish and headed to Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal was an island in the Solomon Islands east of Papua New Guinea. It's 90 miles long. 
and uh, was the nearest Japanese outpost to Australia and was a threat to U.S. supply lines in the South Pacific. And in 1942, the Japanese had taken it from the British. Chesty Puller was 44 years old when he landed on September 18th with the 7th Regiment of the 1st Division, leading over 4,000 Marines onto the beach. Unknown numbers of Japanese patrolled the mountainous island with peaks up to 7,500 feet high. Puller carried a raggedy old copy of Caesar's Gallic War in his pocket, still reading those books on warfare. And I should point out, as a veteran uh, and time sucker in Dayton, Ohio, this past week, it pointed out to me Chesty's life and the life of 500 other Marines he was with were saved by a member of the Coast Guard that day. Uh, during the Guadalcanal campaign, Douglas Monroe, a young Coast Guard coxswain, was tasked with getting Marines ashore, eventually returning his boats to their previously assigned position once the job was complete. Almost immediately after they returned, they learned that the Marines, including legendary Chesty Puller, had encountered unexpected conditions and needed immediate evacuation to avoid utter annihilation. Never one to shirk from duty, Monroe volunteered for the job and brought the boats to shore under heavy enemy fire, evacuating the men on the beach. After getting the bulk of the Marines onto the boats, several events and complications arose in evacuating the last group of Marines, whom Monroe realized would be wiped out if not rescued in time. Springing into action, he laid down suppressing fire and maneuvered his boats into position to act as a shield for the beleaguered Marines and the other boats. Unfortunately, Monroe paid for this action with his life. As the Americans withdrew, the Japanese set up machine gun positions, opening up on the boats with heavy fire. Though he was warned by a crew member to get down, Monroe could not hear over the roar of the engines and was shot in the base of the skull. The shot knocked him unconscious, didn't kill him at first. Monroe came to, once they were behind American lines, his boat was, you know, able to get behind American lines. At the time, it was reported that he had remained conscious long enough to utter his final words, did they get off? You know, did they get off the, uh, off the beach? When he was informed that the Marines did indeed get off the island, he smiled and then he died. For his actions on that fateful day, Douglas Monroe was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. So, wow, man, even the toughest and the bravest of soldiers can't survive on their own. That's a cool story. You know, Marines aren't the only badasses, man. Coast Guard, badasses too. Anyone who goes to war is a badass. My book. Back on Guadalcanal, uh, Puller led a group of 800 soldiers into the jungle the next day to find out what they were up against. When they ran into gunfire for the first time, everyone hit the deck, except, of course, Puller. He walked up and down the line, telling his men they'd be all right. This was just small stuff, and his bravery calmed them. They lost some of their fear when they saw what kind of man they were fighting with. One soldier said, it was the greatest disregard for personal safety I ever saw. Pullard's men took on some light fighting, running into a few snipers here and there, a few machine gun nests here and there. More tales of Puller's insane bravery began to be witnessed and spread around. Apparently, Puller smoked from a pipe at night in order to ascertain the location of any machine gun fire. Uh, like where their nests were. He'd light his pipe in the jungle and then hit the ground immediately afterwards, knowing that Japanese soldiers would zero in on the location of that little pipe flame and fire, also knowing that the flash of their guns would give away their location for his men to fire back. Bananas. In one firefight, when Puller's unit was ambushed, he ended up killing three Japanese officers, uh, officers with his forty-five pistol at very close range. One of them was a major. Uh, man, Puller had no use for, uh, for other leaders he was working with who weren't out fighting alongside the men. When a regional commander called him from a safe base away from the action one time, told him to execute a reconnaissance while he's engaged and also uh, to not engage in large action and be prepared to withdraw, I guess Puller shouted at him, How the hell can I make reconnaissance when I'm engaged down to the last man? We're fighting tooth and nail. If you'd get off your duff and come up here where the fighting is, you'd see the situation and then slam down the field phone. Not afraid to stand up under enemy fire. Not afraid to stand up to superior officers when they act like jackasses. Gotta love this guy. Uh, Puller kicked a lot of ass in Guadalcanal. One battle, he trapped some Japanese soldiers in a crater and blasted them with mortar fire. In the battle, Puller's battalion had five dead and 21 wounded. The Japanese lost almost 700 men. 
Word spread amongst the Japanese soldiers that these Marines were an especially fierce type of American soldier. Despite dealing with the, uh, the Japanese heavy losses, they were not about to give up the island. Uh, the Japanese needed it as a place to land and refuel their planes and stage attacks to, to try and take over their next target, Australia. So they kept sending in reinforcements. Uh, due to the constant battle by October, Puller had lost a quarter of his men and roughly a third of his officers. And he also won a second gold star for his Navy Cross. And then in November, Puller's luck under enemy fire ran out. Shell fragments from Japanese artillery fire shredded his legs, knocked him to the ground. He was able to get back to his feet. He was bleeding freely. And then he was shot twice through the arm with small caliber rifle bullets, uh, knocking him back to the ground. Uh, men shoveled out, uh, shoveled out a foxhole for Puller lowered him into it. When the battle was over and medics came in, uh, Puller refused to be helped off the battlefield until all of his other men were tended to first. Then he insisted on walking himself to a jeep that drove him back to the beach where doctors removed six shell fragments from his legs. The bullets that hit his arm went clean through. A large shell fragment still remained in his thigh, one they'd have to fly him to Australia to operate on. So Puller in instead insisted that they just sew him up and that he would deal with it later. He said, hell, when I was a boy in Virginia, half the old men in the country carried enough Yankee iron in their bodies to open junkyards. I can't go to Australia while my men are fighting. For his bravery in this battle, Puller was recommended by General Vandegrift for the Medal of Honor for leading his battalion for 24 hours on the field of battle while he had seven holes in him. He never got that medal, though, uh, because some paper pusher uh, who probably had never had a bullet whiz by his ear in his life uh, fucked up at his job back in D.C., uh, by the time the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, left Guadalcanal in the first days of 1943, due to nearly every man in it coming down with malaria, like, like all of them basically got malaria, they were the most tightly decorated unit on the island. The 7th Regiment had won 37 medals and 19 recommendations, and from this total, the 1st Battalion had won 28 of the medals and all but four of those recommendations. Uh, Puller returned home to see his wife and daughter on January 9th, 1943, after returning Puller toured military bases for four months around the country to explain Guadalcanal fighting conditions to troops around the nation, get troop morale up, you know, to tell them that the Japanese could be beat. Uh, he did that while his division hung out back in Australia for six months, so they weren't fighting without him. In addition to speaking out about combat strategy, though, Puller would also critique the American military machine, asking why U.S. soldiers weren't given better equipment to fight with, for example. You know, like one example of that is the U.S. shovels would break down quickly when digging foxholes, and the men would end up taking Japanese shovels from the battlefield and using them instead because they were much uh, built, you know, much better quality. Chesty was never afraid to speak his mind when he thought it could help uh, soldiers save their lives. In, in late 1943, Puller was back in the Pacific, this time storming uh, uh, the beach at Ca uh, Cape Gloucester on the island of New Britain. Uh, 63 miles from New Guinea, 70,000 Japanese soldiers defended the 330-mile-long, 50-mile-wide island. Their main objective was to capture the two main Japanese airfields near Cape Gloucester. Now, the Marines landed on December 26, 1943, and by December 30th, they had control of both airfields. Uh, they then pushed south to extend their perimeter fighting until April of 1944. The battles were horrific. The Marines having to bulldoze roads through the jungle so tanks could follow, all while under heavy Japanese fire. Japanese machine gun nests on high ground mowing Marines down as they're crossing open areas and streams such as what would become known as Suicide Creek. Puller, like always, put himself in as much danger or more as the troops fighting underneath him. He ran a bulldozer at one point that was being shot at by Japanese snipers. Uh, one, one of whom had, you know, just shot out the driver of the, of the bulldozer. He just, you know, hopped up there himself so he could help clear a path across Suicide Creek to get those tanks out there to take out those machine gun nests. Uh, 
when a young soldier asked him why he wasn't more careful, telling him that Puller exposed himself like a private even though he was the most valuable man in the outfit, Puller replied, no officer's life is worth more than that of any man in his ranks. He may have more effect on the fighting, but if he does his duty, so far as I can see, he must be up front to see what is actually going on with his troops. They'd find a replacement for me soon enough if I got hit. I've never seen a Marine outfit fall apart for lack of any one man. Man, bravery combined with humility and integrity. No wonder the dude is a beloved legend. While fighting in Cape Gloucester, Puller, Puller was awarded his fourth Navy Cross for overall performance of duty between December 26, 1943 and January 19, 1944. He also continued to write his wife those letters and have those flowers sent. Uh, Puller was promoted to colonel, effective February 1, 1944, and by the end of the month had been named commander of the 1st Marine Regiment. Uh, in September and October 1944, Puller led the 1st Marine Regiment into the protracted battle of uh, uh, Peleliu, one of the bloodiest battles in Marine Corps history, and received his first of two Legion of Merit awards. The fighting was so intense and close-up, men actually beat Japanese soldiers to death with bayonets, stones, even their fists when they ran out of ammunition in some cases. The 1st Marines under Puller's command lost 1,749 out of approximately 300 men. But these losses did not stop Puller from ordering frontal assaults against the well-entrenched enemy. They knocked the Japanese out of 144 defended caves. By the end of the fighting, Puller could hardly walk due to his leg being swollen from that shrapnel that was still inside it. After the fighting was done and Puller made it back to the beach, he wrote his wife, You are the loveliest woman in the world, and you belong to me, and I treasure you more than you will ever know. I am the most fortunate of men and will never forget it. <laughs> the guy was such a man's man, and he was so good with his lady. Ah, oh, man. Puller uh, was featured in Time Magazine for his heroics. And uh, God damn it. <laughs> uh, that is a tough word to say. Peleliu. Peleliu. Uh, being called Man of War by the magazine. Sadly, also in 1944, uh, Puller's younger brother, Samuel D. Puller, the executive officer of the 4th Marine Regiment, was killed by an enemy sniper on Guam. Damn it. Puller returned to the United States in November uh, 1944, was named executive officer of the Infantry Training Regiment at Camp Lejeune, and two weeks later, commanding officer uh, Lejeune. Yeah. After the war, he was made director of the 8th Reserve District in New Orleans and later commanded the Marine Barracks at Pearl Harbor. <laughs> yeah, man. yeah, this uh, this episode, man, there's uh, geographical names like from all over. You got your fucking Cajun names. You got names in Haiti, names in, uh, down in Guatemala. Or no, I mean, sorry, Nicaragua. You got, uh, we're in Africa for a while. We're just hitting everything. We're just fucking hitting everything in this one. So it's quite the tongue twister of an episode. Uh, morale dropped back in the South Pacific amongst the Marines. Puller was in charge of as soon as he left. His, his, his replacement uh, hung out in the officer quarters, unlike Puller, who hung out with all the soldiers. Uh, when Puller was in charge, he insisted that officers eat with the rest of the men, eat the same food. Now that was gone as well. Yeah, Puller never acted like he was above the soldiers he commanded. Why can't more leaders act like that? I think it's so inspiring to the people you lead. November of 1944, Puller returns to the United States, was named Executive Officer of Infantry Training Regiment at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Less than a month later, uh, was named Commanding Officer. After the conclusion of World War II, Puller was made Director of the 8th Reserve District at New Orleans, Louisiana, and later commanded the Marine Barracks at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. In 1945, his second and final child, a son, Louis Burwell Puller Jr., is born. Now, Lewis Jr., uh, a.k.a. Nipples, uh, he was known as Nipples, uh, would, father, uh, would follow in his father's footsteps and become a Marine, Marine officer. So it was Nipples Puller. Uh, it was, you know, I guess that was his nickname. It was, it was Chesty and Nipples. <laughs> no, it was not. That'd be awesome, though, if it was just, I'm Chesty, this is my son, Nipples. No, Lewis Jr. graduated high school in 1963 from the College of William & Mary. 
He graduated in 1967. He received orders to go to Vietnam in July 1968, where he served uh, as an infantry platoon commander for three months. And then on October 11th, 1968, his rifle jammed during an engagement with North Vietnamese troops. He was wounded when he tripped a booby-trapped howitzer round, losing his right leg at the hip, his left leg below the knee, his left hand, and most of his fingers on his right hand in the explosion. Holy shit. The shell riddled his body with shrapnel. He lingered near death for days with his weight dropping to 55 pounds. But he survived. All that was left of him was 55 pounds of him. He later recalled the first time his father saw him in the hospital, he described how uh, Chesty broke down weeping and how that hurt him more than any of his physical injuries. Despite those wounds, he'd go on to earn a law degree, have two children with the woman he married before going to Vietnam, raise a family. You know, he also won the 1992 Pulitzer Prize for biography or autobiography for writing Fortunate Son, the autobiography of Lewis B. Puller Jr. Man, those Puller boys, holy Christ, are they some tough bastards. Back to Chesty. Well, when the Korean War broke out, Puller was once again assigned as the commander of the 1st Marine Regiment. On September 5, 1950, Puller and his Marines took part in the landing at uh, Incheon, uh, for which Puller was, or Incheon, Incheon. Uh, for which Puller was awarded the Silver Star for his overall leadership from September 15th November, uh, through November 2nd, 1950. Puller was awarded his second Legion of Merit award. Uh, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross by the U.S. Army for heroism and action from, uh, from November 29th to December 4th, and he received his fifth Navy Cross for heroism for his actions during the Battle of Chosan Reservoir from December 5th to the 10th, 1950. It was during the Battle of Chosan Reservoir that Puller uttered his famous quote, We've been looking for the enemy for some time now. We finally found him. We're surrounded. <laughs> that simplifies things. I love it. That quote shows up in various forms, by the way, on the web. That was the one I it seemed to be from marine websites in the book, uh, the most accurate. While in Korea, Puller also wrote many letters to his wife and daughter. And in one of those letters to his daughter, there's a quote I really like where he says, The difference between success and failure in this life of ours is mostly hard work. So you must constantly work to try and improve yourself. I love that. And I believe it too. Man, hard work does not guarantee any success in life, but it, it sure is as hell greatly increases your chances of being successful. And you'll definitely be more successful than you would have been if you didn't work hard. And what a hardworking son of a bitch Chesty Puller was, man. 52 years old, he's fighting in Korea, getting shot at, walking in and out of foxholes, checking on his men to keep morale up, watching men die in war after fighting in wars for 30 years. Unreal. And the high plateau or, or plateaus of North, northern Korea, the temperature could drop to 25 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It could hit over 110 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. There's a story about Puller giving his officer's parka to a private because he felt like that guy needed it more. At 52, and he is still hard and rugged and fierce and caring as ever about his men. In one battle in North Korea against the Chinese, uh, when, he, uh, uh, when some army soldiers had fallen under his command, Chesty added to his legend when the army commander uh, fighting under him was told you know, what, what his position in the battle was going to be. Uh, that guy then asked for his direction of the line of retreat. Like, where would that be? Well, I guess in front of him, Puller then, Puller then called his artillery men, uh, gave them the army position and told them that if these army men start to pull back to retreat, that, he, that they were to open fire on them. He said, you know, march forward and fight or die. He looked at the commander after giving that order and he said, does that answer your question? We're here to fight and nothing else. And the dude did not retreat. Despite how successful Puller was, America did eventually back out of the Korean War. Despite all the fighting he'd done for America, uh, Puller wasn't shy about critiquing the military after he got home. And right before he got home, in another letter to his wife, before he came back, Puller said, my, uh, my prayer now is that our leaders, knowing that we have no war machine, will evacuate Korea completely. 
have a thorough house cleaning, and then build a real war machine before becoming involved in another war. May God give us wisdom and common sense. In January 1951, Puller was promoted to the rank of Brigadier General and was assigned to serve as the Assistant Division Commander of the 1st Marine Division. In late February of that year, Puller's immediate supervisor, Major General O.P. Smith, was transferred to command uh, 9 Corps when its commander, Army Major General Bryant Moore, died, leaving Puller in temporary command of the 1st Marine Division until March. Uh, Puller completed his tour of duty as Assistant Commander and left Korea to return to the United States in late May. Upon his return from Korea, Puller took command of the 3rd Marine Division at Camp Pendleton, California until January of 1952, and then he served as the assistant commander of the division until June 1952. Puller then took over troop training, Unit Pacific at Coronado, California. In September 1953, he was promoted to Major General. In July of 1954, Puller assumed command of the 2nd Marine Division at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, until February 1955 when he became Deputy Camp Commander. Then in 1955, Puller suffered a stroke and was forced to retire by the Marine Corps on November 1st, 1955. He was a little suspicious. Initially, doctors cleared him to resume full activities, but then he was sent to other doctors in Bethesda by the top brass, and then those doctors found him unfit to serve. Chesty was convinced he'd spoken too honestly about the military too many times in a critical way, and that the top, uh, top you know, uh, generals wanted him out. He was just, you know, too opposed to being uh, to the military, being led by men who hadn't been battle-tested, and those men pushed him out. Then following his death in 1971, Puller would posthumously be promoted to lieutenant general. Well, after Chessie's retirement, for the most part, he lived a quiet life in Saluda, Virginia with his wife. He finally got to spend a lot of time with his family. Uh, and then in 1966, I love this so much, despite his medically induced retirement over a decade earlier, now at 68 years uh, of age, Chesty volunteers to fight in Vietnam. Uh, that is the coolest shit ever. You know, just, just send me back. Send me back to boot camp if you need to. I'll tear shit up. I don't care. I don't care that I'm damn near four times as old as most of those recruits. I'll, I'll knock out 50 push-ups with four of those dipshit 18-year-olds on my back. Throw their candy asses up there right now. I got it. I still got it. And then on October 11th, 1971, at the age of 73, Chesty Puller passed away after a long fight with an illness. His wife, Virginia, would live for another 35 years, passing away on February 8th, 2006, at the age of 97. And that is it for this timeline. Chesty Puller never quit. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Well, hope you had fun with the time suck that was hopefully a little inspiring. This, this one was a kind of a hard one to do in a sense because I couldn't, I could have included several more hours of cool quotes and stories about this amazing man that is Chesty Puller, but I only got so much time to put these ones together. You know, they don't need to be that long. He just he just seemed like such a solid dude. He loved his kids to death. He seemed to be a great, loving father. He adored his wife and treated her like a queen. Stood up for the little guy. You know, stood up to the big guys. Spoke his mind. You know, gave his job everything he had. He just always seemed to do what was right as opposed to what he thought people might want him to do or what would be the least confrontational or what would be the easiest or or the best for his career. Kind of a bummer to think about how rare the type of person is, man. It's so admirable. What a what a cool uh, you know way to lead your life. You know, it really. You know, I was I stayed up literally all night to do this episode. I did I did not I did not sleep last night, which I know is crazy, but I, doing this episode it, it made it easier because it was so inspiring, man. I, I, I it sounds corny, but I remember thinking like not that not that Chesty Puller would have ever you know lowered himself to do to do to do a podcast. But if he were, oh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't quit. He wouldn't sleep. He'd stay up fucking 
20 nights in a row if he needed to. And if you're put off by his bloodlust, I'll just say that the world has always, thus far, needed men like Chesty to keep the rest of us safe. You know, uh, you know, maybe someday when we all agree to, to never be violent again, if that ever happens, we can all agree on, you know, who gets what and who gets to live where and act like, uh, you know, they want to act and just be peaceful about it. Then, then we won't need men like Chesty anymore. But I, but I highly doubt that time's ever going to come. You know, if you do get something good, someone else who has nothing good usually wants to to take it from you. Uh, no idiots to the internet today. Just didn't feel right with this one, right? It's, we're staying away from the idiots with Chesty, but there is always time for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Chesty Puller is the most decorated Marine in the history of the Corps and the only American serviceman to have been awarded the nation's second highest military awards for valor six times. Number two, Chesty Puller led troops into battle in World War II in his 40s, the Korean War in his 50s, and tried to lead troops in Vietnam when he was damn near 70. 1916, Chesty tried to enlist in the U.S. Army to fight in the border war with Mexico, but he was too young to enlist and his mom did not give her consent to allow him to join. The guy was trying to fight in some war or another pretty much his entire life. Number four, in World War II, Chesty continued to lead his troops and stay with them in battle for hours after getting shot twice and getting another six pieces of metal stuck in his legs from an artillery shell. My God. And number five, new info, the Marine Corps mascot has been perpetually named Chesty Pullerton. He's been a series of purebred English bulldogs, and the current dog is Chesty the 14th. Also, uh, women have served in the Marines since 1918 and have served in combat roles within the Marines since 1967. Thought that was cool to add as well. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, hope you enjoyed that Chesty Puller Veterans Day suck, everybody. Special thanks to Time Suckers Wade Hollowell, Juan Martinez, uh, Nicholas Sanzone, and Michael Johnson for suggesting today's topic. Thanks to Sydney Shives for managing the Time Suck emails and social media as always. Excited for, excited for next Monday's suck already, man. Chief Crazy Horse. I've had requests for to do a Native American suck for a long time, and it's about we're finally doing it. Finally going native here in the suck. I've always been interested in Native American history, you know, but I've just never taken the time to really look into it. You know, I'm one of those many people that supposedly has a little Cherokee blood, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Never looked into it. And that changes this week. Chief Crazy Horse took up arms against the United States federal government to fight against encroachment by white American settlers on Indian territory and to preserve the traditional way of life for the Lakota people. He fought against Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, in which he led a war party to victory. What else did he do? And what exactly was the way of life he was trying to preserve? You're going to find out on a little Wild West Native American suck. You know I love those. Uh, thanks for the continued PayPal donation. So generous, you guys. Thanks for choosing the link to Amazon uh, from timesuckpodcast.com. You know, you helped the show. Thanks for buying Timesuck hats, shirts, all that. All right. Uh, let's catch up on previous episodes and recent happenings uh, with some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. This first one is another shadow person update from Time Sucker Tony Maldonado. <laughs> Subject line is, fuck you, you glorious mother sucker. Aggressive and profane, I prove. So up until now, the shadow people have, were sucked. I, or up, so, so up until the shadow people were sucked, I had never heard of those mischievous little bastards. But ever since, I could not shake that insane feeling that I am being watched, even occasionally catching glimpses of what looked like a shadowy figure with red eyes. Then this past Saturday, while home alone, I woke up abruptly during a nap. I couldn't move, but I felt someone or something standing to the right of me. I felt terrified as it leaned forward close to my ear. I was then pleasantly surprised when, with a voice as smooth as butter, the shadow said, 
I keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. I keep forgetting. Ha <laughs> At this point, I realized this whole thing was a load of bullshit and just an elaborate effort from Michael motherfucking McDonald, the master suckhead, to mess with my mind. Hopefully I got you, or at least made you smile. Keep sucking the good suck and hail Nimrod, Tony Maldonado. Oh, Tony, you didn't just Michael mother, motherfucking McDonald me. You just triple M'd everybody listening. Well played. Well played. That was a good one. This next update comes in from Joey, uh... Stool Draher, Stool Draher, Stool Draher, Joey Stool Draher. I'm fucking goddamn it. <laughs> what is up, suck master? Suck. Really good information about the Zodiac Killer and really scary. However, I'm pretty sure the scariest thing you mentioned was a supercomputer programmed to think like a killer. That sounds like we are asking for Skynet to happen. Have these super nerds ever seen a goddamn movie? And by the way, the pronunciation of my brother's name was not too far off. Uh, Stool Draher. Keep sucking and hail Nimrod. Well, thanks, Joe. I didn't even think of that, man. Why would anyone program a computer to think like a serial killer? I mean, yeah, I guess to catch him, but that does sound kind of reckless, you know? And then I was, that made me think, like, if, if an artificial uh, computer, like a, com- a computer running on artificial intelligence, does kill somebody, who do you charge with murder? The computer or the programmer or both? I don't know. Okay, one more. A fun, silly one from Time Sucker, Rachel Stevenson. She says, hello, Reverend Dr. Time Suck Master. I just wanted to let you know that I truly enjoy getting to delve into each of the topics you choose to suck on each week. I thank Bojangles and Lucifina <laughs> that this podcast was created and pray to Nimrod. Blessed be his name that you keep on growing the suck. Also, I would like to check and see if you could maybe craft a sea chicken shirt out of a unicorn scrotum, chipmunk labia, or any other deliciously soft and otherworldly fabrics you have kicking around in the product warehouse. I would proudly rep that shirt in any situation. Anyway, keep on sucking and inspiring others like myself to suck on as well. Yours truly, Deacon Secretary uh, Operating Thetan, also known as Rachel. Rachel, you are hilarious. I love that. I love that uh, email. Uh, we'll see how those sea chickens hang around, you know, at the show. See if they see if they come back enough. Maybe maybe we will get some kind of sea chicken shirt. That pretty, that'd be funny. It'd uh, be fun to order. I am working on some new um, products. I've just been so damn busy lately with touring and getting the app developed. But uh, I, I have more time coming up for the suck coming up. It is growing. Got to stay on top of it. Uh, hiring someone to to help me get organized so I can actually uh, respond to others' offers for help as well and get things kind of going. Uh, the suck is the only project, man, I would ever want to be this busy for. It's truly a passion project. Uh, and I'm tired, but you know what? I love it. And, uh, and I'm able to keep going even when I'm exhausted because of you guys' encouragement and your guys' love for it, man. Thanks for encouraging me to do what I enjoy so much. I'm very, very lucky, very grateful. Uh, and, you know, I'll be talking to, I'll be talking at you next week. See you, chickens. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, time suckers. Follow the show on social media, at Time Suck Podcast on Twitter. Instagram, and Facebook. Get those Detroit tickets now, please. If, if you're going to go, get them early. And, uh, and good night, Chesty Puller, wherever you are. Oorah! And keep on sucking.